0: The book of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah lived in Jerusalem in the latter half of Israel's kingdom period and he spoke on God's behalf to the leaders of Jerusalem and Judah. He spoke first of all a message of God's judgment. He warned Israel's corrupt leaders that their rebellion against their covenant with God would come at a cost. That God was going to use the great empires of Assyria and after them Babylon to judge Jerusalem if they persisted in idolatry and oppression of the poor. But that announcement was combined with a message of hope. Isaiah believed deeply that God would one day fulfill all of his covenant promises, that he would send a king from David's line to establish God's kingdom, remember 2 Samuel 7, that he would lead Israel in obedience to all of the laws of the covenant made at Mount Sinai, remember Exodus chapter 19. And all of this was so that God's blessing and salvation would flow outward to all of the nations, like God promised to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And it's this hope that Isaiah to speak out against the corruption and idolatry of Israel in his day. Now, the book has a pretty complex literary design, but there's one simple way to see how it all fits together. Chapters 1 through 39 contain three large sections that develop Isaiah's warning of judgment on Israel. And it all culminates in an event pointed to at the end of chapter 39 the fall of Jerusalem and the exile of the people to Babylon. Would
1: you pray with me? Almighty God, pour out your Holy Spirit on me and on all of us gathered here. Lord, take my words and make them yours. Take all of our thoughts and make them yours. And take our hearts and set them on fire for you. Father, we love you. We ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So all of us at one time or another have probably had to uh, do something to our child or a friend of ours or even a pet uh, that they didn't like, but it was for their own good. You know what I mean? Like giving them medicine, having them take a shot, right? No one likes taking their toddler to get shots from the nurse, right? Um, tell them an unpleasant truth about themselves or, or give them a bath. Hopefully that's just your kids or a pet, not a friend. Um, Laughter But let me tell you, you try giving a 75-pound dog with a fear of water a bath, and you'll know what I'm talking about, right? It's not pleasant, but you have to do it. What What if God has to do similar things with us? What if sometimes the only way that we will heal or grow or improve is to undergo a painful procedure that will remove something bad from our lives? A couple years ago at Christmas, or, or at least a few weeks before Christmas, we came home from a, a Christmas party, and we walked into our apartment, and our stockings that we'd hung above the fireplace were on the floor. All the stuff that was in them was scattered around, and we, we realized pretty quickly that our 20-pound corgi had eaten an entire dark chocolate orange. Yeah, he's not the brightest dog. So we had to take him to the emergency vet, right, and, and you know they take him back, and they, first they try to make him throw up, try and get the chocolate. That didn't work. He wouldn't throw up because he was stubborn as well as stupid. (laughs) So then they had to pump his stomach full of charcoal, right, to absorb the, the stuff from the chocolate that could make him sick. And they brought him out to us afterwards, and the dog just looked miserable. I mean, you've never seen such a sad animal in all your life, right? Here he'd eaten all this delicious chocolate, and now he's being tortured for it. And, you know, just had the ears down, the face like, why would you do this to me, right? just looked horrible. And of course we couldn't explain to the dog that you know if we didn't do this you were probably going to die. <laughs> you ate half your weight in chocolate. Couldn't tell him that. All he knows is he's miserable, he's he's suffering and he just wants it to stop. You can't explain to him that you have to do this for his own good. He won't understand. When I was 12 years old, I got appendicitis, and at first we just thought it was like a stomach bug, and even, even the doctor diagnosed it as a stomach flu, right, because it starts off with just really severe nausea and fever and body aches, right, all the classic stuff. And so he said, it's just a stomach flu, you know, in a few days it'll pass, and then a few days later my appendix burst. Uh, yeah, fun times, right? Um, so it, it was a Sunday morning, so dad was already at church. My mom and I were going to the late service, so we're sitting at home when, when all of a sudden I got this debilitating pain in my side, right, bad enough that I couldn't stand up or walk. It was worse than kidney stones, so I've had both, I can tell you. Um, so I'm sitting there, you know, 12-year-old boy, can't move, can't walk. I call my mom for help, and my mother, God bless her, uh, wouldn't call an ambulance because she was convinced if she did, it would turn out to be just gas, Love you, Mom. That was great. So instead of calling the ambulance, she calls our neighbor who comes up. And our neighbor picked me up because I couldn't walk, carried me down the stairs, and laid me in the back seat of his truck, and drove us to the children's hospital. And of course, at the children's hospital, they immediately figured out what was wrong. They scheduled me for surgery, but the the surgeon was delayed by like four or five hours because he was already in another surgery. Meanwhile, my mother's friend rushed to the church, went up to the very front where dad was getting ready to preach and told him that I had been sent to emergency surgery and was already under the knife. So dad left the church. Like he walked out of the service and told everyone he had to go and walked into the hospital to find me sitting there patiently in my bed waiting for the surgeon to arrive. So he wasn't happy either. But because there was that delay of like four or five hours between when the appendix burst and when it was removed, right, there's all that time for the exploded appendix to spread throughout your torso. So the operation takes a lot longer because they have to make sure they get all of that out, right? Yeah. Man, I hope you, you guys don't have lunch plans after this. <laughs> so the, the operation takes longer, which means the recovery takes longer, and it's more painful than it would have been, been otherwise. And it was, it was one of those laparoscopic surgeries, right? So there's small incisions, and then they pump you full of gas to lift everything and separate so they can see what they're doing. And all that gas has to get out of you somehow. So, so your recovery from these surgeries right, is already painful because you're pumped full of gas. You feel like you're going to burst. And you have to walk a lot to work everything out of your system. And walking hurts because they've been cutting inside you. I mean, it's just painful. And it's not pleasant. And it's not pleasant for the people around you either because all that gas is just bad. <laughs> the point is I didn't want to do it. Right? I didn't want to get out of the hospital bed and walk around because it hurt. Every step hurt. Getting out of the bed hurt but it was the only way to get out of the hospital. And the truth is, if, if, the, you know, if the original doctor we went to had, had figured out it was appendicitis, right, we could have had the appendix removed before it burst and then the surgery would have been much more simple, the recovery would have been faster and easier, right? But because the condition continued for so long, it got so much worse that the only solution was a much more painful operation. Which sets you up to understand the Book of Isaiah. Um, Isaiah is really—you can break Isaiah into like three different books. You have the first thirty-nine chapters, and, and these thirty-nine chapters are really all—they're all these uh, predictions and really warnings of God's judgment on the people of Israel, leading up to the exile in Babylon. Then you have forty through fifty-five, which are a much more pleasant part of the book. They're much—they're much nicer. There's not as much judgment. There's much more uh, in there about God's. God's love and his grace and his mercy and then there's the last 11 chapters 50 well 10 56 through 66 which are kind of the same but maybe on a, on a grander scale and, and they're different enough that people have actually thought there might be three different authors to Isaiah but they all work together as one whole to paint one picture so I'm gonna spend one week on each of these sections so today you get the super fun judgmental section it's gonna be great lots of laughter and, and light-hearted stuff um we're going to start in Isaiah uh, chapter 1, right at the very beginning, verses 1 through 10. The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear me, you heavens, listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey its owner's manger, but Israel does not know my people do not understand. Woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evil doers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. Why should you be beaten more? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured, your whole heart afflicted. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there is no soundness. Only wounds and welts and open sores, not cleansed, or bandaged, or soothed with olive oil. Your country is desolate, your cities burned with fire, your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you, laid waste as when overthrown by strangers. Daughter Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a hut in a cucumber field, like a city under siege. Unless the Lord Almighty had left us some survivors, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God. You people of Gomorrah. And then skipping ahead into verse 21. See how the faithful city has become a prostitute. She once was full of justice, and righteousness used to dwell on her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your choice wine is diluted with water, your rulers are rebels, partners with thieves. They all love bribes and chase after gifts. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case does not come before them. Therefore, the Lord, the Lord Almighty, the mighty one of Israel declares, I will vent my wrath on my foes and avenge myself on my enemies. I will turn my hand against you. I will thoroughly purge away your dross and remove all your impurities. I will restore your leaders as in days of old, your rulers as at the beginning. Afterward, you will be called the city of righteousness. The faithful city. Zion will be delivered with justice, her penitent ones with righteousness. See, fun, lighthearted, good stuff, right? You have to see, though, how this image is not so much just of one of, of punishment and wrath, but there is a story in there of purification and refinement there's an image at the end of like purifying gold, right? Removing the impurities from your gold and your silver, which you do with fire, right? It's not like it's a pleasant painless process, but it's not that the goal of the process is not destruction or retribution. It is perfection. It's purification. So in this whole passage, it's as if the city of Jerusalem is on trial and and God kind of lays out the charges at the beginning in verses two through four, right? You've, You've forgotten who your God is. You've rebelled against the God who gave you the land you're living in. And from these charges we can kind of learn a couple things. We can learn first that, that God desires above all else to have holy children. Which means the things that he does are always done in pursuit of making his children holy. The second thing we can learn is that it's God's children who have broken the relationship and the covenant. They broke it off, not God. In fact, God is the one who's been constantly chasing after them and they keep rejecting him. And the final thing we can learn is that this, the reason this is a problem is not, it's not just that they've broken the rules. It's that this is like an affront to God's very character as a holy God who made the people to be holy in the midst of his good creation. And here they are doing all the things they're not supposed to do, damaging all the rest of the things that he made, and so then in, in, in verses 5 through 9, you get this image of, of a, a diseased body, right? The, the wounds and the open sores that haven't been tended to. You get an image of a nation that's being ravaged by invasion and warfare, right? The foreigners are in your fields taking off all your goods. That's an invasion. The point of these, of these poetic visions is to help us see reality from God's point of view. We learn from this that that sin is not merely individual. We have our own individual sins, but but sin is social, it is societal, it is systemic. It affects everyone around us, it affects our communities, it affects our nation, it affects creation itself. And it's clear that this state of affairs is not sustainable. It leads to destruction. Destruction. That's why there's that image of, of an invasion in there. Right? It leads to destruction. But it's important to hold that, that image in your thought as you read through Isaiah, this idea of the diseased body. Right? This, is not, this is not quite the same way we normally approach it. So you have this image here, and it's bleak. Right? The body is diseased. There's all these problems. You keep turning away from God. And let me get into chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, descendants of Jacob, and let us walk in the light of the Lord. So right after this story of God's judgment on Israel is this incredible, beautiful vision of what comes on the other side of judgment. In other words, God is saying, Look, it's, you're, you're, I'm not punishing you just for the sake of upholding the rules or just for the sake of making sure you get what's coming to you, but rather because this is the end goal. This is what we're aiming for. A world where everyone throws down their weapons and there's peace between the nations and God reigns over all in righteousness and justice. And to get you there, you're going to have to go through the fire first. It's not judgment and and punishment for its own sake. It's purification. It's refinement. It's shaping you into the holy people that you are meant to be. And that might be somewhat difficult at times. But if you think back into chapter 1 about that image of a diseased body, it's talking about healing. Healing the disease. So you can get to this vision in chapter 2. And then when you skip ahead into chapter 9, you get a very different image. And I'm going to read to you uh, Isaiah 9, 1 through 7, and this will be familiar to most of you eventually. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, the humbled of the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali, but in the future he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born So we know this right from the Christmas story because this is a prophecy about Jesus. So we especially know the last little bit of it, right? For to us a child is born, a son is given. But it doesn't just say that Jesus will be born. It talks about Jesus reigning over all the world in an eternal kingdom of justice and righteousness. It has has verses in here again about, right, the warrior's boot will be destined for burning, right? Once again, you have this imagery of of all the things we've used to to cause strife and death will be destroyed. There will be peace between the nations because Jesus will reign as king over all the earth. And if you haven't noticed, that hasn't happened yet. Don't know if you picked up on that, watching the news. Which means we're still waiting for some of this prophecy to be fulfilled. This is the hope of Christianity, right? We believe that Jesus has begun his work and we're waiting for him to finish it. So what we get here in this little prophecy in chapter 9 is an image of what we are living for in the future, but also an image of how we are supposed to live right now. If, If our churches are outposts of God's kingdom here in the world, then we are supposed to be living as if the wonderful Counselor, the mighty God, is already ruling over us in a government that, that establishes justice and righteousness, even if, by the way, we are the only people in the whole world pursuing justice and righteousness. Because Lord knows sometimes it can feel like that, doesn't it? But that's the point. This matters because this is how you live. This is, this is what you're being shaped into someone who is like this Messiah who came, who will establish justice and righteousness. It gives us, it sets the ideal, it helps us understand how we're supposed to live right here now, even as we wait for the coming King. And it also gives us the hope that tells us that that we can trust in all these promises, we can trust in the vision from chapter 2, because we've already seen it beginning. And that's key. We aren't just waiting for something that we haven't ever seen a glimpse of. We've seen the beginning of it already. We've seen that the word of the Lord has actually gone out from Zion and spread around the whole world, haven't we? It has already begun. So we have hope. We have hope that these these beautiful visions of a future in which God reigns over all and there is justice and righteousness for eternity and people will beat their swords into plowshares. We have hope that it's already started. That work has begun, and Jesus will come to finish it. And we might need that hope to sustain us at times, because Isaiah is about to get real dark again. Up till now, just about everything he's said has been pretty specific to Israel. He's talking about Israel being judged for Israel's sins, right? The the threat is that they'll eventually go into exile in Babylon, um, but Isaiah also wants to leave no doubt that he is not only talking to the people of Israel, because God is not just the God of Israel. And so, in chapter four, he's going to start talking to everyone else, and it's again just real pleasant and light and uplifting. Sorry, not chapter chapter twenty four, but again, yeah, just happy go lucky pleasant stuff Uh, so chapter 24 verse 1 see the lord is going to lay waste the earth and devastate it happy go lucky great Um, he will ruin its face and scatter its inhabitants it will be the same for priest as for people for the master as for his servant for the mistress as for her servant for seller as for buyer for borrower as for lender for debtor as for creditor the earth will be completely laid waste and totally plundered the lord has spoken this word the earth dries up and withers, the world languishes and withers, the heavens languish with the earth, the earth is defiled by its people, they have disobeyed the laws, violated the statutes, and broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore a curse consumes the earth, its people must bear their guilt. Therefore earth's inhabitants are burnt up, and very few are left. I told you, just really uplifting Bible verses today, right, really just this is, this is actually the beginning of a four-chapter apocalypse right in the middle of Isaiah. And if you remember from a few weeks back, an apocalypse is a, it's a genre of literature. And, and what's happening in an apocalypse is the person writing it is being given a vision where God is revealing to them the world as it really is in a way that they might not have seen otherwise. And he's not sugarcoating it in this passage, right? God's coming to judge the whole earth. It's not just Israel. It's all of creation. And again, it reads very harsh, but, but it should actually call back to mind the imagery right from the very first chapter, that idea of, of the diseased body in need of healing, of a people in need of purification, because that's what it's about. It's not about destruction for all eternity. It's not about wiping away the earth and starting clean, it's about healing and purification. Because on the other side of destruction and death, there is new birth and new creation. And so the image is of a creation that is so broken and so infested with evil and sin that drastic measures are required to save it. It's its like a gangrenous wound, right, where you have to scrape away the dead flesh before the healing can begin. Again, I hope you don't have lunch plans later because it's, <laughs> it, it's like in my surgery, right? When, when they have to remove all the infected flesh before they can let the healing begin because otherwise it'll just come back worse. So the operation was longer and more invasive and more painful than it would have been otherwise. That's what this imagery is trying to, to tell you. The problem is deeper than we usually realize. The solution, therefore, is more invasive and more painful than we might like it to be. So this first section of Isaiah is going to end on a different note. We're going to skip ahead to chapter 39, and I promise I'll tie it all together in a minute. I'm going to read all of chapter 39 because it's just eight verses. At that time, Marduk Baladan, son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent Hezekiah letters and a gift because he had heard of his illness and recovery. Hezekiah received the envoys gladly and showed them what was in his storehouses, the silver, the gold, the spices, the fine olive oil, his entire armory, and everything found among his treasures. There was nothing in his palace or in all his kingdom that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and asked, what did those men say and where did they come from? From a distant land, Hezekiah replied. They came to me from Babylon. The prophet asked, what did they see in your palace? They saw everything in my palace, Hezekiah said. There's nothing among my treasures that I did not show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord Almighty. The time will surely come when everything in your palace, all that your predecessors have stored up until this day, will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood, who will be born to you, will be taken away, and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. The word of the Lord you have spoken is good, Hezekiah replied, for he thought there will be peace and security in my time. So Hezekiah has the ambassadors from Babylon and decides to just show them all the cool stuff he has, right? Here, come look at how rich my defenseless little tiny kingdom is. Look at all the gold we have. Look at how we can't fight you off, right? It's incredibly dumb. Here you have representatives from a global superpower, and you're saying, look at all the money we've stored up, and we can't protect it because we're a tiny little kingdom with no army. Isn't it pretty? Aren't you jealous? You can. Isaiah's whole point is, Hezekiah, you idiot. You've, you've just showed them why they should come and conquer Jerusalem. You've just tempted them, and you can't stop them. And his response is, is to basically shrug his shoulders and say, well, not my problem, I'll be dead by then. Now, at this point in the story, there's three different times when Hezekiah has, has received a, a message from God through Isaiah of mortal danger. The first was a message of danger to his kingdom, The second was a message of danger to his own life. And then now the third is a message of danger to his children. Now the first two times, he responds with prayer and faithfulness. He goes, he worships, he prays, he offers sacrifices. He begs the Lord for mercy. And it works. But this time when the danger is to his children and not him, he says, well, that's their problem. And, And this is the turning point in the book. Isaiah never mentions the conquest of Jerusalem or the exile directly. But what happens is that that, that whole time period, that, the conquest of Jerusalem, the carrying off of people into exile, that happens between 39 verse 8 and 40 verse 1. It's never mentioned directly. By the time you get to the first verse of the next chapter, they are in exile and God is speaking to the people in exile. But you are left at the end of chapter 39, wondering if this king won't care for the children, for the future generations, then who will? And it's a poignant question because we, we, we face the same thing in our own life, right? With an uncertain future, whether, whether you are conservative or liberal, it doesn't matter, right? You have concerns about the future and you wonder who's going to care for future generations. It's, a mass, it's an important question for us still today. And, and luckily... It's answered immediately in, in chapter 40, verse 1, but that's for next week. I'll leave you on a cliffhanger. Always leave them wanting more, right? So the, the whole theme of the book of Isaiah is God's salvation, which is appropriate because Isaiah's name means God saves. And, and, and in the background of all the things that Isaiah is saying, there, there are these uh, political and military threats from the Assyrian Empire and then from the Babylonian Empire, but what Isaiah is telling to the people is, You know, actually, the real threat to you all right now is from God himself. Because salvation comes after judgment for you. Because you are so diseased and so broken and your own sin has brought you so low that God's going to have to do something drastic to get you out of this mess. And you're not going to like it. And so the first 39 chapters of the book all deal with the impending destruction of the Hebrew kingdoms, and salvation only comes after that. The early church, in the first few centuries after uh, Jesus' life, and and still today in some parts of the the Orthodox and Catholic churches, they, they describe Jesus as the divine physician, and that's partly because of his statement in chapter 9, verse 12, where he's eating with the sinners and the Pharisees are asking why he's eating with the filthy sinners. And Jesus says, well, because the doctor goes to the sick people, not the healthy people. But from that verse, they, they, they change how they view the way that Jesus works in our lives. Think about what happens when you go to a doctor. When you're at the doctor's office, right, you, you can't conceal your wounds, your diseases. You really can't pretend to be healthier than you are. It's all laid bare, literally sometimes, right? Nothing is hidden, nothing's concealed. They know everything about your health. And they don't condemn you. They probably won't rebuke you for your bad habits, but they also won't leave you under the impression that you can continue your bad habits and keep living. Instead, what they do is they diagnose the problem and they help you to heal. And this is a crucial part of who Jesus is and what he does that we tend to skip over. Jesus is not just forgiving our sins. He's diagnosing the problem and he's helping us to heal. But we don't always want to take the medicine. We don't always want to do the physical therapy, right, or have the surgery. I don't know about you, but I, I can think in my family specifically of some older people who did not want to do their physical therapy and it made their lives a lot worse. But they, the thought of the, the therapy that would improve their life, it was painful, it was difficult, they didn't want to do it. Sometimes the treatment is scary. And sometimes the treatment hurts. And that does not mean that it isn't necessary. New life and new glory await on the other side of pain. Human sin infects the whole world. It's not just a matter of individual sin. It's not just a matter of if I do this bad thing, it only affects me. It affects everyone around you, not just your immediate friends and family, but but it'll affect your community. We have communal and social sins that affect the whole of society, and all of that together affects the whole world. This is a constant image, especially in the Old Testament, that human sin has affected all of creation itself. And the problem is so deep and it's so pervasive that we really can't do anything about it ourselves. And so it's hard to read these judgment passages in Isaiah and in the other prophets because they can be very violent and brutal. And, you know, we read them and we think, this doesn't really seem like a very loving God. I don't know if I like this part. But, you know, so often what you're reading is poetry and they're using metaphor and imagery to try and explain the The difficult truth that sometimes for God to step in and heal the problem, he's going to have to do some things that will make us uncomfortable and might even be painful for a bit. I mean, certainly the, the exile for the people of Judah was not pleasant. It was miserable. There are whole psalms written lamenting the sorrow that they felt as they were carried off into captivity. But do you know, they never again were guilty of the sin of idolatry. I mean, not once in the the, the four to five hundred years that passed between the exile to the day that Jesus comes, not once do the Jewish people turn to false idols to worship them. Not once do they forget to follow the law. In fact, they get really, really good at it. They are unimaginably faithful for those four hundred years but it took a drastic measure to get them there because the problem had gone on for so long and become so deep within them that for God to save them took drastic steps. See, Jesus does not condemn, he heals. What we often read as condemnation and wrath and punishment in the Old Testament is is God stepping in to do what is necessary to treat the disease and heal his people. And sometimes the things that God has to do to heal us are not pleasant. They're painful. Sometimes that pain is is spiritual or emotional. Sometimes it's more tangible. But my friends, the pain is never the end. There is always rebirth and new creation on the other side. And that is the message of this first half of Isaiah. Isaiah.